Hello, everyone. This is Cassie Burns, co-founder of All Your Data. I'm an attorney who's been using AI and machine learning for 10 years. I love data and love talking to people about data, and that's what this podcast is about. Each episode of Cassie and will feature a new guest. Each guest comes from a different background with a different approach and attitude towards technology. We'll talk about their experiences and hopefully we'll learn a thing or two. Thanks for joining. Let's get started with Cassie and Meryl Hirsch. Meryl, thank you so much for joining us here on Cassie and please tell everyone, A, how we know each other and B, a little bit about what you do. Hi, Cassie. We know each other because you're impossible not to know, let's face it. Oh. <laughs> and we, we know each other because one of the things I do is that I'm the executive director of the Academy of Court Appointed Neutrals. And I think actually you reached out to us because you were interested in stuff we were doing and came as a whirlwind bundle of energy interested <laughs> in doing unusual things with technology to help courts. You were an obvious choice and made you a member, and you're now a board member, so I have to start showing you respect, too. You're also a part of the incubator program of uh, where we're trying to train and mentor people to help bring them into the profession. In addition to doing this, I, my, my vast experience in nonprofit management extends back to September 2021. I'm actually uh, kind of in my real life a lawyer and an ADR professional. I worked with the Justice Department for a while, then I went to a law firm that merged with another law firm 10 years later and merged into another law firm 10 years after that, and I left before it merged again. Do ADR, I'm a hearing examiner, I'm an arbitrator, I'm a mediator, and I also do a lot of things, continue to do a lot of things with the ABA on court-appointed neutrals and how they can help courts. Can you tell everybody what an ADR is or what ADR is? Sure, because I can use jargon with the best of them. <laughs> ADR is alternative <laughs> dispute resolution. It really refers to to any type of dispute resolution apart from classically a court. And so the term's really a misnomer because alternative dispute resolution refers to most of the dispute resolution that happens in the real world. It certainly encompasses mediation and arbitration and assisting people with negotiation. It, it's even, it's way broader than courts. It encompasses community outreach and, and helping neighbors solve problems or gangs get, deal with their, their issues or world peace or wide variety of things in that direction. It includes ombuds who are appointed to help people, who are function in a variety of ways to help people in a variety of settings. It's really a very broad field. And I know you mentioned before, you're the executive director, and I'm a member of the Academy of Court-Appointed Neutrals. Now, court-appointed neutrals are sometimes more commonly referred to as special masters, and I think we all know that it that that title or that role got quite a bit of attention in the past year or so in the courts. Some people may have some familiarity with the phrase special masters, but maybe they don't really understand the role of that type of a person in the judiciary. So can you explain really the role of a court-appointed neutral within our court system? Sure. A court-appointed neutral is a name we are trying to use to rebrand a profession that's been around forever. Most people, not everybody, have used the term special master to refer to it. And the problem is that Master is a lousy term to use in general, and special master is 
a particularly lousy description of this job. So even people who have heard this term don't really understand the job very well because the name sends them in the wrong direction. It's not someone brought in to take over something. It's someone brought in to help. In a court setting, it's a judge bringing in a neutral, a judicial officer who works to help the court handle the litigation in some kind of way. It could be bringing someone in because the judge is pulling his or her, her hair out in frustration at the parties who are arguing over what information they're going to produce to each other and says, I'm going to send you to your mother, oh no, uh, 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 you know, court appointed neutral or whatever it is. It could be someone brought in to monitor a decree and make sure it's followed. It could be you've got a, a resolution involving water. Who's going to figure out who's getting the water, where it's going and how that's happening. It could be an expert brought in to help courts evaluate the party's experts and figure out which one is giving you real science and which one's giving you junk science, or maybe they're both giving you junk science, or to help a judge interpret technical terms in a patent, or a forensic accountant to figure out where money went from a trust, or somebody brought in to try to help the parties work out problems, an expert in electronic discovery who can sit down with the parties and say, okay, look, we all know the drill here. How can we make this way less expensive, way easier on you without having tons of fights that will waste your time and the judge's time? And it could also be outside of a court, like appointing Ken Feinberg to allocate money for the 9-11 fund or BP oil or an administrative or other settings. Think of it as a professional brought in to help a court. I like to describe it as the deputy that's brought in to help the judiciary out in, in whatever sort of capacity that might be. And it's really quite broad, right? And there's no specific enumerated types of tasks that they can they can help the judiciary with. It really is just what's most meaningful to help a judge help manage their docket in essence, whether it's time or expertise. Yeah. And it doesn't even have it doesn't have to be a lawyer. In fact, in some settings that isn't what you want. You, know, you want someone who has expertise in some other field. It does help to have skills where you are a good listener and can help parties feel heard because that's an important part of justice. And it's a part of justice that judges don't always have the time or resources to do if you have lots of parties. to. So it, it, it serves a lot of functions and it, it's evolving. We're trying to make it a more useful tool for courts to use. Many courts have backlogs in the pandemic. We're trying to see, can you use this resource to help with that? Many courts, you have judges with dockets of, of over 2,000 cases. How can you get those meaningfully resolved in a way that people not only receive justice, but feel they've gotten justice? And I will say I've been to now two annual meetings hosted by ACAN, and I've gone to many other meetings of e-discovery or litigation-focused events, and I will say the vibe is very different at ACAN, and I like it. It's a very, uh, very open dialogue. There's no grandstanding. It is all when we have an open meeting and we're discussing things like, should we change the name of the organization? Should we advocate to ABA and other states to change the name of this role within the judiciary? It's a very open, you know, very neutral. We want to hear everyone's opinion. 
we can tell that you're all writing down notes and you have the notes up on the board. I can tell that that's a reflection, I think, of your ADR experience, which is very complimentary, of course, to the court-appointed neutral role of let's hear everybody's voice and and then make a decision from there. And I feel like, again, that's not a vibe you necessarily pick up on. There's a little bit more grandstanding, I think, uh, with other organizations. And it was honestly a breath of fresh air for me. I've really enjoyed engaging with this community very much. Oh, that's great. Do you want to talk a little bit about, I know that you mentioned we're changing the name or we've changed the name of the organization. But before we move on to the technology a little bit more, I'd love to hear what all you're doing to address the name of special master, changing it to court-appointed neutral to a broader, um, different group of people. As I mentioned, special master just isn't a really good term. And some people find it just flat offensive to say someone who might be viewed as in a position of control is being called a master. It's not that anybody adopted this term out of a desire to have it be offensive to anybody. It's simply that, okay, but what are people doing and how might you make use of this stuff? So what happened is as we, let me take a step back. Before I was at ACAN, I was already doing work at the, at the American Bar Association to try to rethink this profession because it came from the sense that, that everybody complains that litigation costs too much and takes, it takes too long. And I've been litigating for 40 years. I've litigated in over 40 states. And every few years, they amend the rules and they say, why are we amending the rules? Because litigation's too expensive and it takes too long. And you keep amending the rules to try to solve the problem. Obviously, you haven't solved the problem. And I have a long bunch of theories about it. But basically, what I think the problem is, isn't the common one. Oh, law, all lawyers are evil. They're just running up money. They're this kind of stuff. Isn't that there aren't some people like that, but by and large, that isn't the problem. The problem is that what makes most people lawyers, there's a study a few years ago that that concluded that law is the only profession in which pessimism among students correlates with eventual success. <laughs> because you're not supposed to wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of night going, did I ask the other side too many questions? You're supposed to wake up and say, is there any stone or pebble or grain of sand that I left unturned in my defense of my client? And that's actually kind of a good thing, that you're worried very much about someone else's welfare. But what it means is you don't put brakes on yourself. You don't say, all right, I've done enough. This is really too much. <laughs> and what the rules tend to do is they either admonish people you should really try to be reasonable. Well, that's great. Defend your client zealously within the bounds of law, just not too much, right, is a very hard message to internalize. Or they change the terms of engagement. One of, the, one of these many changes was to limit the number of interrogatories, written questions that side can send to the other side. So great. So now you can only ask 20 of them. Of course, then you end up with a fight. What's an interrogatory? If you have a question and you have subpart A, B, or C, or right. a string of questions, or tell me, you know, the name, address, business <laughs> position, phone number, blah, blah, blah. Are you asking several questions? Is it one question? And there's a whole body of jurisprudence that came out of this. How do you count an interrogatory? Now, from a social utility standpoint, I don't think it's really benefited people to have this, this unusual issue explored in the courts right? It's taken a lot of people's time. So what happens more effectively 
you know, what, what really does work in my experience, I believe, is case management, that you have someone actually watching and saying, no, this isn't reasonable, do this. Because when you do, you change the incentives, because no one wants to look ridiculous in front of someone who's neutral. Okay, so you've got a job that it's trying to help courts and it's trying to be neutral and it's actually trying to get the parties to operate more effectively. And you need something, and it could be, as you said, Cassie, almost anything, any type of expertise that might be useful. And face it, all the world's problems get filtered through litigation. So judges are facing unbelievable array of different issues. How do you, you know, what do you call this that makes sense? And we spent more time on the what are we going to change this name to problem as opposed to should we change the name, right? I mean, face it, no one really likes a master except a St. Bernard. What we realized, and one of our members actually came up with this at one of the meetings that you're attending. We were talking about this name, Monitor, and all these different names. And she raised her head and said, look, what it really sounds like you're talking about is a court-appointed neutral, someone who could do almost anything. And you realize, okay, that name has a problem because nobody knows it, and it sounds, well, neutral. What world's that? But on the other hand, it's nice to start with something that's at least an accurate description. And so the idea is you start with an accurate description. It's the opposite of Xerox. Instead of starting with some term no one's heard of and then having everyone know it's the, it means copying, you start with a word that describes it and brand it as this is what we call this job. Now we have a word for it. We can start talking about it. So we have not only changed the name of our own organization, and we've tried, we're trying to rebrand the profession to use the name, which is tricky. It would have been easier if we picked Meta, I think, but you know, it's, it's tricky to do that. And so we are working with the ABA on two resolutions that the ABA House of Delegates will be considered. They're, they've been co-sponsored by both the Judicial Division, or part of the American Bar Association that's, that, that's mainly for judges, and the section of dispute resolution in the ABA, one of them would put the ABA in back of this name change and say, okay, we want to change the rules, change the laws, whatever, to start using this as a standard term court-appointed neutral so we can all know what we're talking about and have a better idea of the profession. That's one. And the other is a draft model state rule that would incorporate principles the ABA had previously adopted in 2019 to help implement this profession and help make it more, more useful and help start thinking about using it in different ways. It's definitely been a journey. When I first joined the organization, I wouldn't say it was in its nascent stages. I, I assume that you all had been working on this, but that's, I think, whenever the big push really started happening. So there's still plenty of work to be done, but I know that you've really championed and made this move forward quite a bit. I think that getting more exposure to what this role can provide the judiciary is very timely given all of these emerging technologies that we're starting to see. And honestly, the reason for us here talking to each other today. And mm -hmm. I think we all know that we've talked about it before, generative AI, in particular, I think in the, in the legal world, let's just say all of it, all of the generative AI outputs are going to have some impact to the legal profession. And I personally feel that court-appointed neutrals can be a resource to the judiciary 
A, in navigating some of the, the issues that will come from these tools, but then also I think there's an opportunity, the flip side, the silver lining, is there a way we can use these tools to help overburdened courts manage dockets? So let's start maybe with the cautionary tale. Meryl, I know that you, you're based in DC, you know a lot of people in the judiciary, and I know you don't speak for them, but what's kind of the vibe you're getting from some of the members of the bench about things like ChatGPT? I think it's complex. I, I, look, law in general is pretty slow to change. And, and that in some ways is a very frustrating thing, but in some ways is a very good thing. It's one of these things. The line I frequently use with people is that you still periodically see the word in theft in deeds. Okay. You know, in theft, meaning, meaning that we're giving you a fiefdom because back when the king owned all the property, if you were getting property, you were doing it in exchange for being a knight. And the, the, King could take the fiefdom back with the property and everything else at some point. So we still have in theft when some deeds, when you sell a, a property, we haven't had fiefdoms for kind of a while. So you get an idea of, do you want to be the first lawyer to say, well, let, we don't really need the word in theft here. Oh, okay. What's the effect of taking out the word of theft? Well, you know, maybe we right. should read it, right? So you start with that, okay, in the population too. And there's that. There's also the range of stuff. I mean, my, my younger son calls me a late adopter. I, I'm also not quite a Luddite, so I'm somewhere in between. It is a concern that, look, I'm a judge. I can do a lot of things. I can read cases. I've been able to do this for a long time. Now I need to do something different I may not be as comfortable with. I may not know where it goes, and I'm worried about it to some extent because it's unfamiliar. And frankly, I'm worried about it because there are reasons to be worried about it. It's not an unalloyed thing. It's actually something that raises some kinds of concerns. So you have, as you do anywhere, you have some judges who are really into tech, really like the idea, whatever. You have some who are more concerned. I think every judge recognizes some basic stuff. I mean, it's hard to say every about anything, but basically speaking, okay? Any lawyer who files any brief that uses generative AI needs to go back and check it, okay? That's, that's a given, okay? It's a given even if you're using technology that's, that's better than chat GPT at guaranteeing that what is happening is real. And I think the way judges tend to approach this is it isn't necessarily wrong to use a techno technological tool that can help, but it's really wrong if you don't understand what it's doing. So that's one aspect of it. The other discussion of AI really before the latest chat GPT popularization of generative AI was that there were some initial forays that also kind of spooked people to some extent in using AI to try to make substantive decisions. And somewhat bizarrely, instead of what they picked as things to look at, I, it, it's understandable, but, it, but it's weird, is things like, can we get fairness in sentencing by using a computer rather than flawed human beings who might be subject to biases to decide sentencing and actually tell us what's really comparable types of, of criminal activity? Or could we use AI to help us decide 
decide whether someone should be out on bail or not, right, or locked up and what the bail should be. And what I think people realized, as with a lot of this stuff, is is I think if they understood more of the AI, they would have known that's the worst place to start. It's the worst place to start because computer, you may perceive a computer to be neutral, but a computer is based on data and any data you feed into the computer is biased. So you're going to, to tons of stuff, the Amazon Silicon Valley problems of trying to promote diversity by using computers and finding out you're actually doing the exact opposite, right? Right, um, right. And that comes from not appreciating that it was kind of a garbage in, garbage out pro- problem. And exactly. it is also, and it's not transparent, which makes it even worse and scarier. I don't know how it did it, but it spit out this. And that's really scary if you think about it, especially when you're using it for, for decisions like, is someone going to be incarcerated? Right. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, right. the scariest possible decision to rely on a technology where you're not quite sure what it's doing. And there are reasons to know it's biased. What would you ask them to look at? Prior convictions? Well, if prior convictions are biased, then you're just perpetuating the, the bias involved in prior convictions. And if you're not looking at something like that, what is it? You're doing something completely random. You're, you're going to find out whether, in a famous example, you're going to get people who, who play lacrosse and their name's Jared. The idea of using it long preceded the idea of validating this stuff to make sure it's fair and actually doing it doesn't mean there isn't a possibility because, face it, decisions are unfair now. What they're perpetuating is prior biases created by hum- by flawed human beings who, who you know, a, a lot of which is unintended bias. So it isn't like what it's replacing is a perfect system, but you have to have a lot more comfort that you know what it's doing and you can correct it. And so... I think the answer is, okay, now that we turn start thinking about generative AI more as the in vogue thing, what will it do for us and what kind of problems might it create for us at the same time? And people don't know. I agree with that. And I, I think that in, in this, well, let me back up and say one reason why I joined ACAN is because it's not uncommon for e-discovery professionals to be appointed as a special neutral because of the technical expertise or the technical knowledge that comes with working in this space. Now, working in this space for many of us mean that we have actually been using AI vis-a-vis machine learning for nearly 10 years. Mm-hmm. And we're using it in an adversarial system. So we're not using it commercially or just something that's available to the general public. I use it and no one's questioning me. You're using it in the process by which you determine what the other side gets to have. And that other side is going to vigorously investigate and question the process you took to validate both the data source, the data richness, and also that the results were accurate. People with my type of experience, we know that using AI isn't a one and done. It is absolutely a generative process, or, or excuse me, it's absolutely an iterative process. The first output is never going to be your final output, or it, I, it would be very rare for that to be the case. And we're, we're constantly scrutinizing the quality of the output until it hits levels that we feel we can defend. If it turns into a dispute that that has to be worked out through through briefing, 
So I think that there are people who can be available to help in those scenarios. But I think that previously, or a lot of use of AI has been used in a way without any real scrutiny, any sort of attention to, was it done? Was it used in a defensible way? Were things, were mechanisms put into place to minimize bias as much as possible? When we talk about things like social justice, I could see why some people some disenfranchised groups would would not be inclined to want to see courts use AI to help things like should people have to pay bail and how much or what sort of sentencing should be because there have been numerous examples of algorithmic bias for maybe those same groups in other ways like medical assessments or um loan assessments, things like that. I think that there's a legitimate concern, but that doesn't mean it isn't something we can test out. And that's where people with a technical expertise can be used as court-appointed neutrals to maybe vet out these kinds of opportunities. Yeah. Where I, I think it depends. Honestly, I think think it's a combination of how important is the decision you're making? Okay. It's not that there are a lot of things that are quite helpful for the legal system that we can talk about with using AI, but it's not that someone's freedom or life will depend on it. So if you make, if you're making a first cut, if you're using AI, for example, to triage dockets, to make a first cut of what cases might be at a stage where it would be good to, to, to see if they would mediate it, or what motions might be the best ones to decide right now, it, it A, is probably less likely to be biased because you didn't have that kind, because the, the vectors that you're concerned about aren't particularly relevant, and, and it's very hard to see the connection. It's easy to see the connection between prior convictions and, and bail decisions. It's not that easy to see where, this, where the bias would have happened, which doesn't mean there isn't one, but okay. But also, if you get it wrong, how bad is it? You're doing this because as a group, it would be more efficient to look at it if if in another case, it falls upon the parties to say, I think it's a good time to mediate as opposed to some technology. Is this really so such a horrible thing that your case didn't get picked because of some unknown factor? One of the questions is how, you know, it, it's kind of like how courts analyze due process. I mean, the first thing you have to decide is what is it you lose if you get this wrong? Because if you're not really losing something, it's not property or liberty or something, you don't, and you don't have to worry about what the process is because you're not losing anything you had a vested right to. And then the second question is how relevant is the process? How, what's the risk of error associated with using some system or not? An example where courts, I think, are now comfortable, although it took them some time, is technological assisted review, TAR. And the argument for TAR was really logical. You've got a gajillion documents. Nobody could possibly spend the time to, to review terabytes of data. So you have to come up with some system. And previous systems we all know are inaccurate. And so yeah, it might be for sure it would be true that a TAR system will locate some document that humans would not and vice versa, that there's some document a human will find that TAR would not have found. But the question is, is your error rate going to be larger or smaller? Is it knowable whether it's different? And given the enormous difference in time and costs, is the possibility that that document is going to matter an unreasonable price to pay for a system that is 
way better geared to analyze the data. And I think it took some time for judges to get to the point, but I think it's now pretty well established. Yeah. And it before that went through kind of the intermediate process of doing more like Boolean searches and here are your custodians and that process, which was heavily, you know, person intensive, right? And probably not right. as good as taking seed sets and trying to improve the seed sets until you're comfortable with, with, with how good a job it's doing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We've been using technology-assisted review or machine learning in litigation, again, for 10 years. We've had a lot of analytics-based tools at our disposal that have become fairly commonplace. But I really want to talk a little bit about the whole idea of even AI for docket management. I know that, that you were touching on that. But in some ways, that's nearly putting the cart before the horse because there is a true issue with just the data around dockets. It makes me think a little bit of, I like true crime. And in the late 60s and the 70s, if a serial killer had victims in multiple jurisdictions, they weren't talking to each other. There was no method or, or mechanism to share information across jurisdictional lines. So there were these blind spots until eventually, I believe that the, the FBI or DOJ pushed this initiative to have in essence, a, a nationwide normalized source of data for people in local jurisdictions to input information and feed into a broader search database. We don't have that in the judiciary. I don't even think at the federal level, much less at the state's level. So that's a whole other nut that would have to be cracked, don't you think? Yes, certainly to some extent. Yeah, actually, interestingly, I was just at the D.C. Circuit Judicial Conference and the two days of, of the first two days of programming, the first one was on DEA and alcohol, tobacco and firearms and how they track stuff and what they're facing and how they've generated databases to help help track information and, and figure out stuff. And the second day was on artificial intelligence. They dovetailed on both of these different points and what kind of work they do. Courts, one of the problems that maybe technology can help solve is that courts in many states are very balkanized. It isn't even just the problem of we've got 50 states and, and D.C. and other jurisdictions and all, all of this stuff and a federal system and a state system and whatever. If you are in Georgia, I think there are, I may get this number wrong, but I think there are 169 counties or something in Georgia, 159, something like that. And the courts don't completely align with the counties. When Bridget McCormick was chief justice in Michigan, she commented that if she needed to know how many landlord-tenant cases were pending in the state of Michigan, she could ask her staff to start asking questions, and in a couple of weeks, she'd get an estimate. Because you've got separate courts that are not on the same computer system, that don't code things the same way. and more recently, there have been efforts to try to normalize data, but historically, somebody codes Brown as B-R-O-W-N, someone codes it as B-R-N, somebody codes it as B in an eye color, right? And right. you're not able to pull up that information because it depends on which county. And some of these counties, many of these counties have elected court clerks that they are really very separate from each other. It's not like they're ultimately, in some sense, they're answerable to the Supreme Court, but not in a way that 
that has that has such a direct line where an order comes down from on high and it instantly happens. And the task of getting all of them to use the same system, and that was what people tried to do for a while, develop coding manuals, we'll all use BRN for Brown or whatever, right? And that's hell to try to implement and subject to a lot of human error. I have to say, I recently signed up for Social Security, and one of the delays in doing it was that that despite my telling them that I was born in Trenton, New Jersey, their record said Trenton, Nevada. So wow. I have to say, well, how did that get to be NV rather than NJ? Okay. Technology is getting to the point where it could help with that, where it could help normalize data. It could help figure out where the where the field is in this county's data that relates to the field in that county's data. And whatever you call brown, it recognizes all of these things as brown. And the counties don't have to spend a fortune trying to do the same thing or argue about which one is better. You have technology that normalizes the data so you can start doing it. It is very hard, as everyone says, to improve something you can't measure. And getting back to court-appointed neutrals, that's one of the longer-term projects, which is because people haven't understood this job, they haven't used it in a regular way, which is bad. And not just because they're not making as much use of it as they could, but also because they aren't making it as good as it could be because you, you're, you're not thoroughly vetting people, thoroughly training people, thoroughly evaluating their work, figuring out better how you want to use them and what skill sets you need and all of those things. And you don't have data. So I can say my experience, as I think I did earlier, tells me X, which is right. I have lots of experience, but that's not the same as saying I've got, a, I've got this study that does an actual comparison and tells you X. Eventually, we want to go there. We want to get data on when neutrals are used, who's appointed a neutral, what the experience of the parties were. Did it actually help promote the litigation in positive ways? Did it help the judge? How could it be improved? That's how you do things better. I think as we wind this episode down, there definitely seems to be a lot of opportunities for court-appointed neutrals to play a role in assisting the judiciary. Do you have any closing comments or thoughts on this topic as we shut down this episode? I think it helps for people to think of this creatively. I think the first thing they need to do is start talking to courts because lawyers know almost nothing about how courts operate, you know, really, truly. They don't understand the difficulties they deal with. Some of the problems that court face, lawyers don't see. The biggest, most obvious one is as a friend of mine who's wonderful, Brittany Kaufman, who runs an organization, the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal Profession, a legal system, it pointed out huge problem for courts, unrepresented litigants. 70% of the, of the litigants in state courts do not have lawyers, which completely changes how the case gets handled and a lot of other things and whether they're properly dealt with. Lawyers don't see it because they're in the cases with lawyers. Right. The courts see it. People don't understand that's a problem courts deal with. They don't understand how courts deal with hundreds of thousands of asbestos cases or or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of opioid cases or all of these things. And they need to understand what problems the courts are facing better to help work with them creatively on solutions to do things we may never have done before. 
So one of the things we've thrown out as an idea, and it requires some brainstorming, but if you set up rosters of court-appointed neutrals, which would help a lot of different ways, it would help diversify the profession, it would help improve the profession, it would make it more thoughtful, it would involve people who are affected in the decision-making so they could own the process. One of the side benefits is you could require that they do some work for free, pro bono, as part of this, in exchange for getting paid work from a roster, and then use it for something no one's ever used in before, like helping to triage dockets or setting up an, an AI system that would help do it, do it, or work with some process to validate it, or any number of different things. Once you have people, you can use them more creatively, and that's really the next phase of, of this, I think. You like to say I'm a whirlwind, but I'm nothing compared to you, Meryl. You've accomplished a lot in the year and a half that I've been a member of ACAN, and I've really enjoyed knowing you and the organization in that time. And I think a, a overriding message is one of hope, of, of really trying to do right by the, the social justice issues that we, we face. And hopefully technology and court-appointed neutrals can play a role in that. So thank you very much, Meryl. I appreciate you coming and being a guest on this podcast. I hope everyone out there enjoyed it as much as I did. But again, thank you very much, Meryl. Always great to talk with you, Cassie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.